0: Hello, everybody. You're listening to the podcast for Angel Nears. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Chris O'Neill, an operator, advisor, and investor with over 20 years' experience. His most recent operating role was as the turnaround CEO and chairman of Evernote. Over the course of his career as a technology operator, Chris has seen his share of storms from the dot-com bust to the financial crisis of 08-09, as well as the turnaround of some iconic brands. Today, we're going to talk with Chris about the lessons learned and mistakes made from operating in previous downturns and turning around Evernote. But before we get into that, Chris, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Oleg. Excited to have you. So Chris, you found in sailing a great metaphor for business and life. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you found that? Well, I, I grew up in a
1: small town in Canada, booming metropolis called Godridge, Ontario, population 7,000, and it's on the shores of Lake Huron. And uh, as part of life growing up on the water, you, you're kind of forced to do sailing, even in like physical education class, we took it. So I got exposed to sailing at a pretty young age. Uh, now, that doesn't mean I'm a great sailor, but I, I've always found sailing to be a nice metaphor for life. It's certainly a nice metaphor for, for storms in how you adjust. So, you know, I, I thought I'd have a little fun with it to think about what we're living through right now. And it, it, it was surprisingly robust as a metaphor for how you, how you navigate through some, uh, some crises or some turbulent times. And Certainly these days qualify. So
0: that's that's really where it came from. All right. Well, as someone who played a water sport in college, I am very familiar with the water, but I have not spent much time in a vessel other than my own body. Uh, so I'm excited to learn, learn a little bit more about this. So let's start with this. In any crisis, priority number one is to stay afloat. You call it battening down the hatches. How does this translate into a set of decisive actions or decisions? Sure,
1: so if you think about a startup in any time, your job is essentially to stay in the game or stay alive. And in a crisis that, that becomes increasingly hard. So the notion of you're in a storm, you have to batten down the hatches. And there are a few things that I found to be useful, and I've been very fortunate to have had good advisors, mentors, and board members along the way. And I'd say the very first step is is really not trying to predict the future, but really try to prepare for a variety of scenarios. So I'm a very big fan of scenario planning and and not, again, trying to say, okay, if these sorts of things happen, what will we do? These sorts of things which are beyond our control, how will we play the things that are within our control? And a mindset that says, we should prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So that's really a, a mindset that that I found helpful. And when you when a crisis hits, you almost have to delete the, your playbook and really start from scratch. And, and the thing that you typically control are on the cost side. So that's usually where it starts. There's there's this concept called zero-based budgeting, but really the the mindset is that hey, question question everything, and arrange your plans in in a variety of scenarios between doomsday to optimistic and then tend to prepare for the downside that's that's one principle uh, that i found there are others as well and i'll I'll, I'll talk about that briefly but one is is a concept that i call ground truth so often uh, people in a storm get buffeted and get thrown off course so if you don't know where you are relative to where you're trying to go it's really difficult so this this concept of ground truth means like where are you with your customers where are you with your team how is your product standing up etc and it helps to have again in sailing in the olden days before gps people use the north star to navigate and the same thing is true in a company i believe in life too not to get too philosophical hmm. but if you if you're not clear on your purpose and your mission, and your destination, and your strategy, and the trade-offs you're willing to make, it becomes really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's, for starters, is to say, what are the scenarios we should be thinking about? And what's the ground truth? Where are we relative to
0: where we're trying to, to go? Yeah, so just to reiterate that, you, you should analyze your situation, understand what could happen, prepare for those things and continue your course towards some point. How would you go about finding your, your North Star? Because I, I figure that's kind of a, a, a challenge in itself.
1: It is. And it's um, I had the good fortune to get to know Jeff Wiener over the years. And he he when he first told me this, it felt very overly prescriptive. But I learned the wisdom of being very, very thoughtful about what is your core what is your vision? You know, what's your mission? What's your strategy? What are your objectives? What are your values as a company? And not in a fluffy way, but really prescriptive uh, in getting everyone on the same page, literally like if it can't fit on a page, maybe a page and a half or two, and that everyone on the team can consistently recite and understand and internalize that. You really, you're really not going to get as far as you would like. And the way that, the way that he likened it is like if you imagine a rocket launching, and if you're off by a few degrees at launch, mm-hmm. when you get out into orbit, you're off by hundreds of miles, right? So, especially early in the journey for a company, defining those things—not as though some of them won't change and evolve. Of course, they will. But to be really clear about those things, so that everyone can stay relatively on the same page as you go. So that really has to do with talking to customers. It has to do with talking, you know, and and really having open communication and bi-directional communication with your team and other stakeholders in your company. So it really starts there. And then the notion of plotting a new course, right? So, So often when crises happen or you're pivoting as a company, you have to find ways to chart a new course. And it really does start with really understand sometimes what i call the physics of your company meaning you know what how does how does stuff happen right how does a customer come in how do they engage with your product or service experience it renew if it's a renewal type of a product and then engage others and bring them into the fold and being fairly intentional about how that physics the physics are, are working and being able to measure what you can and then really really staying in constant dialogue with your customers to understand the job that they hire you to do, and really make sure that as their needs and priorities change, which they almost inevitably do in times of crisis, that you are listening and not just not just um, repeating the same old, the same mm-hmm. old playbook and, and delivering the same old product the same old way, but adapting where and how you need to.
0: Yeah. So. Let's let's put a pin in charting the new course. I really want to hear from you how how you were able to get your bearings as CEO of Evernote. Can you give me like concrete examples of of what that was like and maybe what was going on when you came on board? Yeah, sure. Evernote is is one of these amazing companies that created a category of capturing
1: information that was important to you anywhere in any 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 device at any time. And then being able to retrieve that in the moments that matter to you. And you know, the beauty of Evernote was like being prescient in the fact that we're going to have more devices and that we're going to have an information overload in our lives and the ability to find and surface that information is going to be increasingly important. So we did incredibly well for so many years, brought in lots of partners and around the time I joined, had lost its way a little bit in terms of really understanding which which jobs it was really being hired to do and was trying to do lots of different things. So one of the first things we did was trying to narrow the focus. So, for example, there were some products that had been acquired or they had been built that solved a specific need. So whether it's pen-based uh, inputs to, to a tablet, a, a product called Penultimate. There's a product called Scannable there's a product called Skitch and all these products and variants of Evernote, all amazing, but really lacked the scale to to really move the needle for the company and distracted some of the resources. In fact, a lot of the resources when you added it all up from the core product. And in fact, the core promise and the product, we've been letting the customers down, the users down a little bit. So job one was to really refocus on, on that. And that had very profound implications for the products roadmap and the engineering infrastructure that needed to be fortified and modernized in many ways. So that was a very specific, so as to narrow the number of things that we're doing to try to do fewer things. Well, uh, on the team side, it's so, it's so interesting that what motivates certain members at different phases of a company's life, the company had been so used to another raise raise uh, financing or another big milestone. So we need to reorient. When I talk about the physics of the company, it's really like, hey, it's not so much about adding more registered users, but it's really about adding more engaged users and actually Mm -hmm. thinking through monetization in a very real way. So Mm -hmm. the monetization, when you talked with customers or your users rather, they, they weren't always clear as to A, the difference between a free product and a paid product. Or if they were paying for a product, they weren't always clear about why, so we set out to make that clear in a way that was yes good for the cus for the customer and for the company as well. So that was very specific. We changed our pricing model. I was not a very popular person on Twitter for a while, but really, like, I think you have to own that as as a company, right? To say, hey, this is what we stand for. We're the best in what we do. We're going to charge a premium for that, and that ultimately did work out quite well as as far as the overall health of the company and the community ultimately did understand that, even though not everyone did. Those are some examples. We made changes like from a, from an, our own data center, operating our own data center to a public cloud, so we migrated to, to that. We made changes in our international operations, really to, we had I think roughly 11 or 12 offices, so centralizing a lot of the offices in one, one place and the practices because we had a lot of duplication and a lot of the benefit of operating a SaaS company is, is consistency and really getting, getting in, in very clever about things like pricing and marketing and how you position your product. These are some of the examples that we wrestled with in addition to, to a team that was really motivated for the next leg of the journey that was fairly
0: different in terms of the things that we, we prioritized. So as I hear you talking about all these changes you made as CEO, you know, I imagine they took a really long time. And as you continue along that journey and as you become familiar with the company, maybe that orienting towards your North Star and charting your new course blend together. Does that sound accurate? When you're doing it well, yes. And one of the challenges like operating in COVID
1: and in a turnaround have some similarities is that... You, you don't always have the benefit of perfect information. In fact, you never do. But in particular, you have, you have a compression of time. so you have to make decisions quickly. So but if you are doing it well, if you are clear about what, what we're talking about here, North Star, which is a combination really of like your vision, your mission, your strategy, all those, all those things I' mentioned earlier and more, it does work that way, but it is it's incredibly hard. When, when you have imperfect information, you have uh, challenges from all sides uh, of a company. And that's, you know, some people thrive in that. I, I tend to do, mm-hmm. to thrive in that environment. Not everyone, not everyone does.
0: Yeah. I guess the next logical question is, does the journey ever end or are you kind of continually charting that new course for growth? It never ends. Uh,
1: and and, and I, I would say it never gets easier. I, I think there's like, there's this, there's this myth of, that like it gets easier. Like there's always a set of challenges, and it is remarkable. There's such a survivorship bias in in the world, and certainly in the Valley. But like you're always, if you're doing it right, right? if you're really pushing out there, you, you're constantly looking for the next wave of growth. It's it's all it's it's difficult. It, it becomes hard, and and that's like either you like that or you don't. I'm the type of person that, if presented with one or two paths, right, I almost <laughs> invariably, whether it's like learning a new sport or a new skill or you know when in, in the business world or a new mm-hmm. new path, I always take the more complicated path. Not uh, probably a defect on my part, but I, I do believe that's true. Like the journey's never done. And if you set a big enough and audacious enough vision or aspiration, then that is that is true. And, that, and even if you come a little short of a mission along the way, I've always been trained and thought that if it's better to fall a little bit short of a really big mission than it is to kind of crush a small one. And so that's really underlying some of my underlying thoughts and assumptions and philosophies on goal setting on pushing oneself and constantly really really trying to to learn new and interesting things it's a way that on a personal level uh, i've always kept myself fresh and sharp and certainly is true in the companies where i've i've been uh, doing my best
0: work and been part of great teams definitely that's uh, what i would call a growth mindset and it sounds like you kind of live breathe and and die by that
1: I try to, <laughs> not always successfully, but I try to.
0: Right. Well, failure is always going to be a part of that as well, right? The failures, there's a lot of failure that, that leads to the successes and being okay with that is one of the biggest challenges you're going to face, but keep at it and maintain that direction, uh, maintain that progress towards that North Star and yeah. constantly, constantly, you know, take bearing of where you're at and chart the new course. I'm trying to use all these sailing metaphors. I hope I'm doing oh, there you job. go. There you go. So we understand now the importance of getting your bearings and preparing for the worst. As we're navigating and, you know, as you're a CEO and you're navigating a company, it's kind of this vessel, you get a lot of waves and storms from the outside. And I think I think those kind of come from the customer. So tell me more about how and why you should understand your customer and, and even get close to them.
1: Yeah, so
0: it's a good thing in, a,
1: in any in environment in any, at any time, and it's overused to talk about it, but often people, when things change, like in a crisis, like what we're living through right now, almost by definition, needs and priorities have changed. So, so you have to really listen with um, open ears to really understand how you can better serve these new needs and, and priorities. You know, wh- one of the things that, that I did in, Early on mm-hmm. at, at Evernote, I do this. I do this as part of a listening tour. Any in any new role, it's just listen. Like call out people, mm-hmm. and just open-ended, ask open-ended questions, and that will help point the way, or at least give you some insights or some breadcrumbs, if you will, to mm-hmm. um, to to understand how you need to change and in what ways. And you know, I, I know you've had my friend Bob Tinker on on this show, he he has a great metaphor. Uh, they, he, he talks about in the early days of, of finding your product market fit, or in his case, he talks about go to market fit. It's like this Davy Crockett mode where you're finding your way through the woods where you're actually constantly testing new assumptions, right? You have to unlearn the things that brought you success in the past. And so that the way that, that tactically works is by spending a lot of time uh, probably, probably more so with prospects than existing customers, although both would be, Hey, Asking open-ended questions and then just learning to shut up, and, and so in in today's world, of course, it's like saving hard costs, right? Is, is is super super important, and if if you're successful, you can position what you do as essential as opposed to experimental. So a, a lot of um, enterprise companies today are really having longer sales cycles, it's becoming more challenging, we're all adapting to a more remote distributed world, but finding ways to listen for those needs and priorities will help you understand how to reposition your product as something that's essential. I'll give you a very specific example. It might sound counterintuitive, uh, but if we go back far enough in my early stages of Google, I'll give you an example. Yeah, it's funny. Google had a down quarter very recently and everyone's like, oh, first down quarter in Google's history. In fact, it's not true. (laughs) In the the 2008-2009 recession, Google did have its first ever uh, down uh, quarter and had to lay off people. Um, And I was working with retailers on behalf of Google at the time. And at that time, retail associated Google with e-commerce and to like low level people in the e-commerce arm. And that was really interesting so when we tried to to position ourselves with more with with less what we tried to start to do is reposition google as a way to do more with less by basically displacing other less efficient advertising means of driving traffic and we started to chip away at the notion that online actually drove store traffic right this is kind of taken as a given today but at the Mm -hmm. time it wasn't so it's very much like a a necessity created you know necessity is the mother of invention and that was a very specific example where we repositioned google not as some fancy thing off in the the ether but it's going to drive cost efficiencies into the marketing side of the store if you will so that was one example and we started to do a bunch of controlled experiments to prove causal like if this then that and that's that's something i think you encourage encourage people to do is to try new interesting ways to position yourself as a b- ability to save hard costs and or position yourself as something that's essential to the operations of a company or someone's life
0: yeah good advice there but i hate to inform you chris anything that happened over 10 years ago it's like didn't happen yeah, yeah, I'm old, so uh, I guess uh, I guess my my examples span back longer. No, I'm just kidding, you know. But it is kind of crazy with the with the news cycle today. How how fast we forget? Sure. So, last last approach here to consider: how do you how did you do something like reconsider your pricing, and and why should you be doing that? Is there like a a time limit, you know, we haven't reconsidered our pricing in X amount of years. We should reevaluate this. When is the right time to do it and how do you do it? Sure. And pricing in SaaS is probably the least understood, most
1: the highest impact lever. And why do I say that? It's like there's an art and a science to pricing as there is with most things. Mm-hmm. Um, most people like think lower prices are better and are are not really scientific in how they go about understanding you know the the relationship between the value they deliver and the price that they extract. So being very intentional about it in the first place is great. But like in in the case of Evernote, we hadn't changed prices in like close to ten years. So and and we had re- really had evidence to suggest that the value we delivered to certain segments of the population was higher than the the pricing that we were extracting. So it's just a really under un- important a, a really important lever and. I think charging more is an unpopular decision, uh, but if you actually understand and align your pricing with the value, then then you're on the right path. And there are a number of scientific ways to go about this. So in our case, to go back to how I described Everett, the value, it was the value is primarily a function of the number of devices and the ability to capture anywhere and anytime. Hmm. So, Long story short on our pricing discovery, we looked at every different possible permutation of how pricing could happen. And we ultimately settled on that as as the mechanism, meaning kind of like Netflix, where the number of devices you have simultaneously connected to Netflix determines the pricing tier that you're in. Mm -hmm. We did something similar to that. So the ability for ubiquitous capture and then retrieval was essentially where we landed on it, and then you can experiment, right? Part of the, the part of the fun of software is that, you know, you don't have to do everything all at once, especially if you have multiple different geographies or if you have different ways to, to segment out customers. So we tested different things in different geographies before rolling it all out. Um, so that's that's broadly my my thoughts on on pricing, and it ten, tends to be one of the bigger mistakes that entrepreneurs make is not charging enough for their product. And maybe the downstream implications of that are obvious, but if you don't charge enough for your product, you know, you can't invest in the product. You can't invest in marketing to make sure people are aware of it. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, um, that's, that's, um, my, my point of view. We, if, if, if it's interesting, we can talk about how to price existing customers in a downturn, uh, and the notion that keeping existing customers is far, far smarter and easier than attracting newer ones. So, so if you think about solving for long-term lifetime value, that's often a nice frame as well, as opposed to just a transaction or a single, a single part. And again, there's 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 a lot of things to think about. So you do that in an intelligent way by thinking about risk and overall value in a segmented way, as opposed to you know, one size fits, fits none, uh, especially in a B2B setting.
0: Well, yeah, uh, I got some time here. Let's get into it. Um, I think that's a really interesting kind of conundrum, especially when you're sitting at the helm. Do we want to do whatever we can to hold on to our existing customers? Or do we think, do we think maybe we're not valued as highly as we should be? And we actually want to update our pricing model? How do you kind of draw the Venn diagram or look at the pros and cons there and, and ultimately make a decision.
1: Yeah, there's a few thoughts. And again, there's there's, there's both art and science here, and, and, and these are situation dependent. But the things that I found to be more, more helpful than not, it, it starts with a classification of your customers. And, I, and I'm going to skew this more towards a B2B setting, mm-hmm. although some of the lessons here apply in a B2C setting. But if you think about classifying your customers by both risk and value, and then doubling down on the higher value customers very obvious thing to say but it starts with the discipline to actually think about your entire customer base and segment them and mm-hmm. it's it's it, it's gonna, it's hard for people to intuitively get this next thing i'm going to say which is basically not all customers can be saved uh, and not all customers should be saved you know to be to be clear so mm-hmm. again not you don't want every customer and they're not all created equally so so taking a segmented view is is important the 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 most common thing if you decide to save and you're solving and optimizing for lifetime value is to offer a lower price in return for a slightly longer extension of of the contract length okay so Hmm. and and even how you do that is is probably more important than the what and what i mean by that is you know things that offer more for your money in addition to just length of contract so no risk trials right offering them free cancellation you know, performance related rebates, a loyalty credit, you extend the payment terms, you can increase your service levels. I mean, I could keep going with examples and my point isn't to be exhaustive, but is to, to, to take, a, take a step back and try to be creative about, again, the interchange and the exchange of things of unequal value. Last thing in this direction is, is you know, free months rather than discounts wherever possible. And why do I say that? Well, if you offer a discount, it's harder to undo that later. If you say, hey, we're going to give you N number of free months, at the end of those three months or four months, whatever it is, you can switch back without having a very complicated conversation. So again, just to, just to think about pricing as a strategic lever and, and asset. You can be artistic, but also scientific about how you arrive at pricing. And then also be very creative about what I call exchanging things of unequal value when when you're looking at your existing customer base and their pricing.
0: Well, that was a interesting conversation. Next, let's talk about maintaining and, and leveling up your crew. I want to know more about picking the best team and how to communicate with your team effectively, as well as empowering your team to do their best. So let's start with making your crew using a, another sailing metaphor here. How do you make your crew happier, uh, particularly during challenging time? We're recording this interview during coronavirus quarantine and lockdown. So how do you manage keeping your crew happy? Well, at first, it starts with a mindset that, that really, that's all that matters. Like in the end, I mean, you can
1: have the greatest company, you can have the greatest product, this or that. But if you don't have a team, and if you, if you come back to, a, to a, a sailing metaphor, right? If, if you're a captain, you're going to need to hire sailors again, right? For, for, mm-hmm. to, to, operate your, your, your boat. And it, it therefore behooves you to have a very good reputation to treat people the way that they deserve to be treated. And that typically, you know, I do like Simon Sinek's work, both start with the why, but he also has something called the infinite game. So it's, it's like playing a long game, right? And that does tend to, be the starting point for, I think, successful companies and leaders is to say, hey, listen, there's going to be, I'm going to take a long view here on people. And that doesn't mean don't make, have to make difficult decisions. Uh, But I think that candor and authenticity overused words, but when it comes time, when the, when the, when the metaphorical shit is hitting the fan, like being authentic and being candid is essential. And it becomes, I think what separates people. So you can be empathetic compassionate and very disauthentic and open with people. Hmm. That's a starting point. I think um, another thing, we're seeing, we saw this before COVID. I think we're seeing acute cases of mental health challenges with all the stresses in the world, all the complexities that we're all wrestling with. And, And so I always talk about starting with yourself, like putting your own oxygen mask on first. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not ashamed to admit that I've wrestled with burnout throughout different stages of my career. I've found ways to basically take care of myself because if you're not taking care of yourself as a leader, then boy, it's so hard to take care of others. you know the other the other part is 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 expressing humanity and you can do other things like, doing small but meaningful things to encourage people's well-being right mm-hmm. now, buying them a mindfulness application. but really being human, right like we're all stuck in our houses right now and when, when someone's dog walks by or someone's kid interrupts mm-hmm. rather than it being seen as an interruption, I view it as a welcome uh, part. but um, really like those, just some some more mindset things, but really where I've made mistakes and or done done, done this well, it really does start with asking questions of the team mm-hmm. and having a genuine curiosity and and a desire to listen right to to what's going on. I talked about a listening to her when I go into a new situation, but I think channeling this this constant curiosity that often, you know, the people closest to the problems and or the people most who most shape. A culture or a company are are right around you. and the answers are often lying in plain sight should you choose to listen to them. I think it's a time to double down on communication and bilateral and listening, so whether it's slack channels or town halls or creative ways to get what's really on people's minds so you push past the surface. I think there's a I learned this actually from Intuit. I learned this from uh, from their their fearless leader. Uh, Brad Smith, he's just great. He, he in the downturn in 08, 09, he asked everyone to log all the things that were going better in a crisis than they were before, and then they kept the things on the other side that were working. Um, and that's a that's a um, another nice tactic that I, I I've tried to to encourage others to borrow and or practice myself. And the last thing last thing on the t- super tactical side is like. Communication is underrated too, just as the is. So, as a leader, you live with things much longer than most others and you see more things. The ability to communicate, and you know, there's an executive at Google called, named Jonathan Rosenberg who liked to say repetition doesn't spoil the prayer. So, the notion of constantly repeating things, and I talked about the North Star, like it's impossible to over communicate those things, you know, especially if you have new people in the midst, right? Almost by definition, they've only heard it once or twice. Humans need to hear things seven, eight, nine times before they really internalize it. And there's some science behind that, which I won't bore you with. But the takeaway for me as a leader is when I am sick and tired of hearing myself say something, I know that I'm halfway there and I need to keep going. Um And and then I guess the last, like one of the things that I've seen separate the great leaders at a time of crisis is really reconnecting people to the purpose in the first place. Right. If you have a great purpose and, and most credit companies do, it's how do you figure out how to reconnect people to that purpose? You know, one definition of leaders is this translator of dreams right to keep that purpose alive especially in in hard times right? um, and there's a there's, there's a really nice quote in, in keeping with the sailing metaphor that says you know if, if you want to build a ship you know, don't drum up uh, the men to gather wood divide the work and give orders instead you know, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea and so I I really like that uh, as 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 a, as a mindset
0: for great leadership. I love that a whole lot to unpack there. The first thing is a lesson from one of Dale Carnegie's books, which is the, the only way to really make someone do something is to make them want to do it. And I think yeah that's kind of at the heart of your metaphor there the second thing i'll say is internalizing things does take time and i've struggled with this and i wish there was a word for it for when something finally clicks the example i'll use is sunscreen i'm i come from russian and irish descent so my complexion is light to say the least Mm -hmm. and when i was young and running around my mom would always try to get sunscreen on me and i hated it it was a weird smell i didn't like putting stuff on my face And then I played water polo for about 10 years. And now sunscreen is like my war paint. And I wouldn't dare go outside for more than 30 minutes without putting an ample amount of sunscreen on. And I wish there was some sort of word because there is a point when all these lessons that you've been hearing from your mom, got to put on sunscreen, got to put on sunscreen. Mm -hmm. They finally click and you understand the lesson. Another thing you said, well, two things about and I think, I think this is so key. You said listening is key. So we could all do more listening. I think it's key. But then what you also said, you didn't say talking is important. You said communicating is important. Talking Mm -hmm. is easy. Saying words is easy. The hard thing is communicating and and having those, having those messages actually be heard and internalized. it's, It's more than just talking. It's communicating. And then the, the last thing I'll say, which I loved, the first thing I asked was how do you keep your, your crew happy? And you didn't say, you know, act happy. It's actually weird to just act happy all the time. You have to be human. And sometimes to get happiness out of your crew, it it means when you're having a downtime, it's being realistic and and feeling those emotions and not always putting out happiness. It's, it's not happiness all the time. That's not what's going to lead to happiness. It's sort of being human and understanding the realities of what's going on. Yeah, that one last one's so important. I and I,
1: I can't really wrestle with it, right? I mean like I am generally uh, I smile a lot and like I you know I spent ten years at Google where it was like up and to the right, right? It's like it's like what's the slope of that curve? It was very steep. When you're going through a turnaround, it's not always that way. And and like people want to know that like that you're real and they want to know that you get it. Like, you know, it was often the the, the most difficult messages that I had to deliver were i are nervous you don't sleep very well the night before butterflies in your stomach but like you know I often was so ple- pleasantly surprised and greeted not by everyone but by by most people with like hallelujah, like someone's finally t- like but like finally finally like we're, we're, we're injecting truth into the mix here mm. and in candor and like that's that's been very informative for me throughout life you know and in part of what I, I do from a board perspective right when you're when're you're on a board, you're not actually an operator. You're actually communicating through asking questions and probing to make sure that there's robust thought. And and again, I think it's just, it's really helpful to understand. There's lots of different ways to influence, but you really it really starts with being like like trustworthy, authentic, and,
0: and uh, really being real <laughs> with people yeah. when uh, when the situation calls for it. Yeah, I think all these lessons are going to inform the next answer. But as you are Getting your bearings, and as you're trying to understand the course you're navigating, and maybe readjusting your course, you know your growth plan might shift, and and people might not always be super happy about something like that. So, how do you get everyone on the same page when you have a new growth plan and you're trying to execute on that growth plan?
1: Yeah, it's it's not. I mean, if you if you do it well, and you have time, and then if you don't have time, you should probably try to create it. And, and what I it's a concept I call build in, not buy in. Build in, and again, if you're listening to, to to people like your customers, your employees, your stakeholders, your board, your investors, like rarely you're going to get everyone in line, but like at least people feel heard, and even if they don't agree with the, the the direction, you know, Amazon has a great value called disagree and commit, and all great cultures have a version of that. all great teams have a great, you know, whether it's sports or professional or families even, right? Learning how to disagree and then say, okay, I felt heard and no, I don't necessarily agree with the direction, but I'm going to get behind it Mm -hmm. because I'm part of this team. I'm part of this family. That's really essential. So like if you don't do that, often you get the predictable resistance. So I think Mm -hmm. that that's a good part of it. Beyond that, it's articulating like why you're changing. Like as specifically as you can why it's going to be better right and you know how will we know when when it's better so some metrics of success and you know a little bit of time travel is is uh, is sometimes important in storytelling again I'll, I'll point to to a tactic that amazon uses for their product development which is basically like writing the the press release if you will four, three, four, five years into the future. And, and uh, I sometimes use that tactic to kind of get people to focus on a different state, not to be delusional, but to say, hey, when things have gone right, this is what it looks like. And then communicating like how, and then finding ways. I mean, one of the things that, I, again, similar, I've made every mistake in the book on, on most things in management and leadership and investing, but it's it's knowing that different people learn differently and need to hear things differently. So you know, this is like engineers, typically different than salespeople, Not always, but typically, right? So one of the things that I found to be useful in my career is like, is breaking it in, into smaller groups of people, not, not just doing one to n and one to many, but grabbing like five to 15 people, putting them in a room and whiteboarding. You know, it's, I think people, people can hide behind PowerPoints and you know, presentations and so forth, but there's, there's there's something pretty real about being able to just interact on a whiteboard and draw a strategy or you know even just the numbers, right? Like people, especially mm-hmm. with engineers, I found that, that that was a really useful tactic to say, "Hey, here's the reality of our business. If we don't do this, this is like this is the not a good outcome." And if 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 we go in this direction, here are the things that you have to believe. And showing a few numbers and drawing a picture or two is, is a, again, I found that to be a fairly helpful uh, tactic with certain groups of people.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I didn't discover the the power of the whiteboard until college. It's, it's such a great tool, you know, it it invites collaboration. And like you said, a PowerPoint is, is more like a lecture. It's sort of the slides are done. You're sort of just what's, what's there is what's there. There's no changing it, but with a whiteboard, it's sort of an invitation to grab ideas rather than tell people what they should be thinking. So I, I really like that as a tool. Yeah. Next, let's talk about new horizons in venture capital. Let's talk about what's to come when we emerge from the storm and being optimistic about what's on the horizon. What are some of the clues that you can, can look to to find what's to come and what waves are building up on the horizon? sure i think there are, there are a few
1: so one of the great things about crises and so forth is that they inevitably end <laughs> and without continuing to butcher the metaphor of sailing in storms too far like the thing that i like is the assumptions of the past have been washed away and in its place there's permission to try new things and this it is i believe one of the many reasons why some of the best companies and institutions are built the back of a downturn or in the back of stormy or turbulent times. You know, it's just like, oh, like in the case of COVID, right, the trends that were well underway got compressed, like not a little but a lot, right? In some cases five, ten years. I, I mean I spent a lot of time in, in retail and looking at commerce and that's like so obvious. And you know, that was same with telemedicine or, you know, think about exercising and all sorts mm-hmm. of all these other well being things. Like so so I think that thing one to think about is just like okay like the conditions are like it are ripe and we're open for different things almost by definition so i think that that's important i think that i loved my time at google x it was in many ways a kind of a dysfunctional project i was working on i was working on google glass and wearables My, my takeaways were working with wonderful people who thought incredibly big and who, who kind of just like really thought about what things, not what, what could go wrong, but what could go right. And that channeling that, in addition to like the assumptions being loosely, more loosely held, coupled with like Andreessen's time to build article, which I thought was great, right? It's like, it's time for us to take, you know, these approaches, not just the things that have been accelerated, like DocuSign and e-commerce and you know, all all the things which are, are really well established, understood, but I think it's time to take a lot of the underlying forces in technology to more traditional industries, whether that's healthcare, whether that's industrial education, right? I mean, geez, my my kids are upstairs right now, allegedly learning and it's better than not doing it. Right. But it's, Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, it's so suboptimal, right? Like Zoom is an amazing tool by, built by an amazing team with a great leader, but gosh, talk about a square peg in a round hole, right? It's there's going to be such an unbundling of that of that service, as one example. But I do believe taking real technological forces, approaches, and bringing them to bear on healthcare, on education. On, on traditional industries. I think that's going to be an enormous wave. It, it's starting to happen. It's going to take um, a while, but that's one part. So actually, it actually, a sub theme to that is you're seeing a couple of these things take place where you have founders who've been founders a couple of different times. So they've seen adversity. They know, their way through and, and don't get buffeted as easily so there are companies that are leaders that are taking their multiple rounds of, of startup success and into the into these very industries so uh, i i know seth sternberg he's t- tackling in-home care for uh, seniors and family there's a company called honor there's this guy named sammy Inkinen. he's doing Verta health there's a, there's a great healthcare company called forward reshaping the doctor's office these are the sorts of things where you're, you're gonna, you have to take a longer time horizon, but bringing the mindset of an entrepreneur who's seen, has built, acquired some wealth, and some patience and ability to take and play a longer game. So, like the, I would say that that's that's really one big big ball of, th- of threads. As to you, you talked about waves forming, I don't know if that perfectly lines with with waves forming, but that's sort of sort of the orientation around the on the entrepreneurial side, thinking bigger, bringing it to different industries and really unlocking, you know, the portions of the economy, which really haven't have been resistant to, to the type of change that um, we we take for granted in certain industries.
0: Yeah, no, I think you nailed it on the head. I think you were able to identify where a few waves are, are forming and where we expect to see um, big changes coming. My immediate question, you know, I actually, you keep talking about healthcare, I actually work in healthcare technology. Who do you think has the more enviable position? Somebody who has been in healthcare technology for maybe 10 years, and they're ready to pivot to a, to address, you know, maybe the need of a telehealth market, ready to address those needs? Or do you think starting a a new company right now and trying to create something, having sort of seen where we are at today, uh, who's in the better position, in your opinion?
1: Well, I I think you you obviously need a bit of both. It's it's the it's the mix, and that's not a cop out answer. I do think it's just really true, right? You you need a a blend of people who understand the issue. but on balance, I like the the fresh approach, right? I, I think that I mean, it's probably overused, but like who's the person that's single handedly disrupted sustainable? cars. Who's this person that's disrupted rockets? (laughs) Who's the person that's like putting implants in pigs, for God's sake, at this point? Underground, like he has zero experience in any of those industries, but is fundamentally bringing a fresh perspective and just an unapologetically audacious mission. He will get to Mars. So on balance, this is the fresh thinking and the unencumbered thinking is, in my view, the predominant where you'd want to bat. And then blending in people who have the context
0: and ability. So that's that's sort of how I think about it. Okay, so maybe I should take out some take out some bets and bet on some new healthcare companies.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's just it's just interesting, right? Like, think of how real change happens. It's and and the other the other piece that like if you if you if I get philosophical around big tech, and I'm not talking about government regulation, although it's almost inevitably coming in mm-hmm. a pretty real way. If you think about the size and the scale of these trillion dollar companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, you know, go down the list the, for them to grow, they're going to need to disrupt very big industries. <laughs> and what are those industries? Healthcare, education, et cetera. And you're already seeing signs of these companies staring them down. I don't think they have a choice if they're to, to continue to grow at the rates that they have, even, even if, you know, you just put aside government regulation altogether, which makes it even more acute for them to find new markets to disrupt, et cetera.
0: So I think you'll see that. And I, I would, I'm, I'm very long on Amazon. That's fair. Let's address the rise of the operator investor. The name itself is not new. Is there anything new in the way they work today?
1: Well, so like first declare my bias, of course, I'm like, so biased. is not even funny, right? This is what I'm doing. And this is like the next phase of my, of my professional career. Uh-huh. You know, again, like let's stay with, with, um, sailing or, or, um, you know, shipping in this case, like if a large container ship comes into the San Francisco Bay Area, I didn't learn this until recently, but like by law, there has to be what's called a pilot on board and Mm -hmm. come on board and help that ship get safely to the harbor. Mm -hmm. And that pilot brings knowledge of the currents, the topological understanding of what's beneath the water and has experience, right? And knows everything about not everything, but knows a lot about the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So metaphorically, that that's the operator investor, right? It doesn't mean that, that the uh, operator, like the entrepreneur, uh, hands over the wheel, but really partners with someone who has who's seen these waters before and can offer a perspective and certainly keep the ship off of the rocks. So like that's that's kind of just how I think about it at first. Uh, but like the complexity of the world today and the speed at which things change, I, I think it requires someone who's like, like not going to give you platitudes and, you know, like, like pithy, cute sounding things that sound great. But No, no, like actually like this is, I'm not telling you exactly what to do, but I'm going to share experiences where I was in a similar position. So I think that that's one part. Of course, there's introduction to A players, right? As we mentioned about the crew. A talent, like the team that you are building ultimately determines your, your success. And it sounds very obvious to say, but making introductions to not just people, but the best players, the partners, making introductions to customers, right? Being relentless and being scrappy in doing that. That's what operator investors, when they're, when they're great, can do. I think uh, those who also have had expo- exposure to different functional areas can really engage with you on product strategy, can really engage with you on your go-to-market strategy. And again, not in a hand wavy fluffy way, but to really like, oh, right. These are the three or four value creation levers here. This is how you measure them. You talked about how to rally an organization around change. It's the same thing, right? Someone who's been there and done that and made mistakes and seen success can help you do that. And then the last is like, is almost like a, you know, just a, just a mentor or coach, if you will, typically around leadership stuff. Like I'd say, you know, I used to have this professor in business school who was teaching us operations, like operational theory. We'd go through all the math about supply chain and do all this calculation. And At the end of every class, right? The conclusion which he would articulate out loud would be at the end, it's all OB, right? Organizational behavior, which really is his way of saying it's all about people. So operator investors who have understanding and have some EQ can help coach through leadership issues, which is really about frequency of communication and style and really keeping a team more or less between um, between the rails. So like that's um, that's one way to think about it. And again, so so steady hand on the wheel, help you absorb things and shocks as they come, not be the panic person in the corner that's amplifying. Those, those those shocks, um, so that you can really get the time and space to to experiment with things and maybe even
0: radically new things as needed. Well, I just got to say that metaphor of the pilot is is really incredible and totally appropriate, given that we're talking about uh, you know sailing here and uh, treating your business as, as a boat. You know, having that pilot to do the last step and 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 engage your kind of docking. Seems very valuable and it's kind of a perfect metaphor. But while it is important to have real experience with the waters that you're in when it comes to the Bay Area, especially, why is it also important for investors to bring a global perspective to the table? There's clear data that that's happening, right? If you look at where funding is happening right now,
1: it's about half and half, right? In terms of VC investment dollars in the United States, which is disproportionately here in the Valley. Versus outside, and that's just like the internet grew up here in the US, but it's, it's certainly global, right? If you just look at, I, I mean, I could spout off tons of stats, but if you look at, you know, China and e commerce alone is 40% of the global market. China alone, it's amazing. If you look at the mobile phone industry, you know, China and India have five times more mobile phones than, than the US. I think the other dynamic that is is real. We're living it, and we're already pushing towards the, the distribution of work. You know, this is a forced experiment with COVID. But the tools that are available, and and we're gonna see this this, this Cambrian explosion of innovation here. I know it, and. You know, it started with things like like Jira, right, and, and Atlassian and Slack and Zoom and, mm-hmm. you know, just keep going down the list. There's just like hundreds, and like Asana is about to go public, like all these tools that really allow work to be distributed in like an okay level. And in the future will be like that. So I think that you're gonna see distributed teams form everywhere and the capital will flow like water to those different things, you know, and, and not to not to get myself into too much trouble with the immigration policies of this country, but they're completely backward, right? I'm Canadian who has, uh, you know, now has two, dual, dual citizenship, but like, goodness gracious, if the U.S. doesn't get its, its head out of its butt on immigration, like, There'll be no other choice but to build elsewhere. So, that's that's another part of this as well. So, so investors are are finding great entrepreneurs not just in the Valley. I mean, look at look to look to Canada for great stories like Shopify. There'll be many, many others, other Shopify's and many other different geographies from here.
0: Well, if the U.S. is unable to do that, you will find me in Vancouver. (laughs) Speaking of which, good luck to the Canucks tonight in their game seven. Dad's probably going to have to cut that out, but I'm just putting it in there. (laughs) Go Canucks. Before we go, uh, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you? I'm sure people are going to have questions after listening to this one.
1: Yeah, they can find me on the socials. I'm I'm somewhat active on Twitter. I'm not a super, super active. You can
0: find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn. All right. That's Chris O'Neill. We're going to end it there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating. I would appreciate it. Thanks, Chris, for joining the show today. Let's get you back on here soon. That was informative and educational. Thanks, Oleg. Have a great weekend.